got the 17th chapter and 7th verse when the Lord says, you will make a boat. Thou shalt construct a ship. You didn't have time to scout around for the necessary metals. The Lord tell you, I can find you where to get them. He said they were adept in oars and so forth, where to find oars and to make the bellow. Now, we were talking about Hilton's book, Lynn and Hope Hilton, where they followed the, <coughs> the supposed trail of Lehi down. I have a map here. Well, we have the map. But this, uh, and they came to Jiddah, which is on the coast, halfway down. That's the port of Mecca, where you go to Mecca. And he tells us that there is a branch of the church of about 75 members in Jiddah today. I didn't know that. On the coast of Arabia. And they make ships there, and they make them at other places. Now, the, uh, there's one at Yenbo, there's one at Jiddah, and then one at Salali down in the south in the Kara Mountains. That's where, where they make ships. It's the most marvelous way they do it. As he tells us, as Brother Hilton tells us here. <coughs> The, uh, we saw men carving planks by hand, shaping the keel and the bow with hand-operated drills in the same fathers, the way as their fathers and grandfathers had done. There were no electric power nor any modern tools. Such machinery as power saws, band saws, electric drills, and matic hammers were conspicuously absent. We saw they were hand-operated, woodworking, and iron-working tools. They all looked handmade as well. We saw an adze, a sharpened iron blade used to hew lumber to specific shapes. We observed local ships right, using this tool to carve huge logs to desired shapes for keels and ribs. We noted wooden and iron hammers and chisels used to skin off bark, clean up the tree limbs, notch the ends so the logs would fit perpendicular to the keel. We observed axes to rough out basic shapes from tree trunks or limbs before the ads, before the ads finished each job to the exact shape desired. It describes a hand-operated drill was the most interesting tool. Hardwood spindle had been turned to hand-powered lathe, and a hardwood capper handle was carved to fit over the spindle so the spindle would rotate freely inside the handle. The wrought iron bit point or points had been carefully hammered out with a blacksmith's pour. None of these things, these things were all just hammered out over the fork. The tools were all made on the spot, and it was native iron, and they banged them out, and they made make marvelous ships. The, the Arab dows sail thousands of miles, can sail around the world without any trouble. Well, he notes that we won't want to spend too much time on this. He says, all these tools described, plus others we saw, were mentioned in the Old Testament long before Lehi's day. And then, then he lists the various passages in the Old Testament. From other sources, we learn of shipbuilding in this area at least a thousand years before Lehi's time. Drawings and sculptures convince us the style, shape, and size of the present Arab laws are exactly like those they used to make for thousands of years. Why should you change if you have a good form and efficient? They could make these things with their eyes closed. We marvel at the ship's builder's skill. When they shaped each rib of their ship, they carefully chose a tree limb that bent naturally to the curve they wished and outlined the exact shape, chipping away with a small hand, axe, or adze. They preserved the natural bend of the wood, using their feet and toes to hold it as they worked. As we gazed out at the Red Sea, we wished that Nephi had included a few more details in the account. Well, he doesn't need to. Uh, the, uh, so, uh, and then making the trip. Well, we get to the journey here in a, in a second. The, uh, and we talked about not making fire and so forth. Now, when his brothers saw they weren't going to make, uh, he was going to try to build a ship, they, this was it. They thought, we really have him now. He'll make a complete fool of himself. They didn't believe that I could build a ship. Now, you'll notice this. Uh, this is where all their pent-up frustrations comes out. But <coughs> the, uh, and they rejoiced. And they said, we knew you could not construct a ship. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> but notice, Nephi himself was bowled over. He first of all said, I don't know how to make a ship. Uh, I'll show thee. And I said, Lord, whither shall I go that I may find ore to molten, that I may make tools and so forth? He didn't expect to make this journey. Nobody did. They weren't going to cross the water. They hadn't dreamed of that, as we saw in the other verses back there, just in the preceding page. They thought they were going out into some strange wilderness where they would establish a community, and Nephi would make himself king and ruler of them in the manner of the companions of the cave or of the, uh, of the various sectaries. This had been going on, as we saw in the Nachal Kaver, 
for thousands of years doing the usual thing. They thought you were going to be another the star or the teacher of righteousness. Uh, the lead, titles of various teachers that leave these lead these communities out. The teacher of righteousness was the one up in, uh, in Qumran. The star was named for the leader at Damascus and so forth. So they never dreamed they would have to cross the water. This was something that really bowled them over. And so they rejoiced over me. We have him now. You're just as bad as our father, they say in the 20th verse. And then you ask the question, now the uh, Laman and Lemuel are interesting types, you notice. They're, they're complicated characters. If you can find all the references to them, you'll find <coughs> that they have a case going for them. And they're typical. I was just reading just before I came here. I should have brought it along. Uh, uh, the, the famous Eldad Hadani, uh, his search for the, the ten tribes in the ninth century, because he uh, comes across this area and he talks about these people here in a very interesting way, but about their temperament and so forth. But they're like unto our fathers. These many years we've suffered in the wilderness. Now, would you say that they had a legitimate gripe? Well, from their point of view, I think they certainly did. They said, uh, and the worst of it is, you see, we didn't leave wicked Jerusalem. Those people were keeping the laws. They were religious. They were the official church. The people at Jerusalem were a righteous people. They kept the statutes and judgments of the Lord, all his commandments. Wherefore, uh, according to the law of Moses, they kept the law of Moses. Wherefore, we know they are a righteous people, and our Father has judged them, and he's led us away into this wilderness when we might have been enjoying ourselves all this time. What's the point of having all that wealth? We can't use it, see. And... And, uh, and so then Nephi gives them a lecture on the past of what happened and the necessity of being Rechabites. They should be brought in bondage. Israel, if they didn't move, would be brought into bondage. And they hardened their hearts and blinded their minds, and he would destroy them, and he did lead them, as the case may be. And now do you suppose, now this is a very important statement he makes here, to, speaking to them, in the 33rd verse of the 17th chapter. Do you suppose that the children of this land, who were in the land of promise, see, they, the whole land had been occupied by uh, Arabs, Amorites, and so forth, all related, all speaking closely related language, closely related to Hebrew too, the, the tablets show that. In the land of promise we were driven, were driven out by our fathers. Do you suppose that they were righteous? If they were righteous, they would have been the chosen people, he says. Our fathers were chosen for that time, but they weren't righteous very long, he says. Do you suppose our fathers would have been more choice than they if they had been righteous? No, I say unto you, nay. Then the 35th verse, Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. Uh, they could have been the chosen people. Blood has nothing to do with it. He that is righteous is favored of God. And who is righteous in the Book of Mormon? Very simple definition of righteousness in the Book of Mormon, as in, as in the Book of Ezekiel. Uh, he was righteous, he was repenting. And a person who is not repenting is a person who is not righteous. That's all there is to it. Because we're all wicked, we all need to repent all the time. Speak nothing but repentance to this generation. The first word of the Lord to the Nephites was, this is my Father's gospel that he calleth, that this is my gospel that the Father calleth upon all men everywhere to repent. You have to do that. And as, uh, as Ezekiel tells us, uh, a person may have been righteous all his life, but if he's not repenting anymore, he's wicked. The person may have been wicked all his life, and if he's repenting now, he's righteous. It makes no difference. So always repent, always keep repenting. We'll see what repentance is later on. That's easy enough to get to. But notice, uh, the Lord esteems all flesh in one. And now we come to this very important doctrine of the promised land, the curse and the blessing. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Baracha is never... I know you have some Hebrew students here. You know the Baracha... The bracha, bracha is never mentioned without the kalala. They rhyme neatly, neatly, you see. The kalala. The bracha, the blessing, always goes with the kalala, the cursing. That is the, that is the penalty clause that goes with it. I mean, if you sign a contract that gives you a, a big advantage, you're not free to break the contract. There's a penalty if you break it. Uh, commensurate with the, the gain you would have if you kept it, you see. There has to be a balance there. You have to be willing to run a risk in the same thing. If you're going to get the promised land, if you're going to enjoy the, the benefits of it, you better watch out because if you don't live up to the terms of the contract, you're going to be in the soup. So, 
And this is the, this is the doctrine here. The earth is adopted to man's pleasure and convenience. Behold, the Lord hath created the earth that it should be inhabited. He hath created his children that they should possess it. We're supposed to be in here. Excuse me. He raises up a righteous nation and he destroys the wickedness. He's not going to tolerate the abuse of the earth very long. This is, this is a, a thing you see for uh, as far as uh, environment is concerned. He leadeth away the righteous into precious lands, gives them the best possible land, and the wicked he gets rid of. And curseth the land, the same land, unto them for their sakes. The land is precious. It is not to be abused. And he says he curses the land for their sake. The earth is his footstool. And there is a connection between heaven and earth. He rules high in the heavens, he says. The earth is his footstool in the 39th verse here. So, the... This is, the, this is the basic and fundamental principles of the promised land. They're going to a promised land. See, this is the understanding, when, what we're going there for. The earth is his footstool. Now, we brought them out of the land of Egypt, which wasn't their land, and they hardened their hearts. They always did. And they, 42 second verse notice also, and they did harden their hearts from time to time, revile against Moses, also against God. And he led them forth to a land of promise. You notice uh, the environment does make a difference. I mean, the ambience we live in is, is conditioned by our own behavior. When people move, you will always find that. When a vile, greedy gang of people move into a place, a settlement, it, it can become hideous. The, all the beauty of the frontier, if you read uh, something like the, uh, well, even roughing it, even Mark Twain, descriptions of, uh, of crossing the plains and so forth, or Orson Pratt's, or uh, Cooper, Jane, uh, Jane Fenimore Cooper's, Jane Fenimore, Fenimore Cooper's novel called Home as Found. The frontier villages of America within just a year or two became garbage dumps. They're shocking what they are. You described all the, all the stopping stations along the way Mark Twain describes when he, he crossed the country in a stagecoach. They just accumulations of filth and so forth. It's amazing. People reflect their own. The environment reflects the people. And pe so heaven is, a, is an ambience. It's an environment as well as a state of mind, as far as that goes. And so is hell. They're going to create an environment. And, and this environment is very important. It reflects on us. And they were led by his match, uh, matchless power to the land of promise. Now, after all these things, the time has come that they have become wicked, the Jews, after all these things. Now, Nearly unto ripeness. How, how much longer did they have to, uh, to last? Three more years, wasn't it? They'd been in the desert for eight years, he says, wandering for eight years, not always in the desert. And uh, Jerusalem was destroyed 11 years after they left, so they had three more years to go at Jerusalem, the winding up. And he tells them uh, about Laman and Laman. He says, you're murderers in your hearts like unto them because you thought of, of murdering your father, and that's not very good. The... Uh, and then he tells them, if you don't hear one voice, you'll have to hear the other. Two voices. Notice in this, uh, this is a, it tells us the same thing in the, in the 19th chapter. His name, he says, you were past, <coughs> you've seen an angel, and you had the still small voice, but you were past feeling. Notice you feel the voice. You were past feeling. Wherefore, for that reason, he has spoken to you like the voice of thunder. They, if they wouldn't hear the gentle voice, they would get the thunder. And it knocked them out. You know, it scared the daylights out of them. The same thing happens, I, I see, in the 11th, cha 11th verse of the 19th chapter. For thus, to the Lord God surely shall visit the house of Israel in that day with his voice because of their righteousness unto their great joy and salvation, and others with thunderings and lightnings of his power because they're not righteous. You have your choice of the voice you're going to hear. Will it be a good one or will it be the voice? You'll be the voice of thunder. We'll, we'll get you moving all right. And so the... Two voices here. The angel, he speaks. Remember, the angel spoke with the voice of thunder, and the earth shook too at the same time. Oh, Nephi's passion here. He's really worked up in the 47th verse. My soul is rent with anguish because of you. My frame has no strength. And then he's filled with strength. Touch me not. I'm filled with the power of God. Now he really gets going, and he frightens them. And he uses this... Uh, He's commanded me to build a ship. He said, if God had commanded me to do all things, I could do them. And you know people under stress do marvelous things. Uh, once there was a giant 
bully of the frontier, the best wrestler there was going and so forth. And he came and started making trouble uh, in Nauvoo there. And Joseph Smith was walking in the street with Lyman White. He said to Lyman White, you throw that man. Well, Lyman White was an ordinary guy. And Joseph Smith said to him, just throw that man. So Lyman White took him and threw him clear over his head. Lads nearly broke his neck. So if you have to do something, you can do it if you're filled with the spirit. And you know cases of, of women who've lifted cars when they've fallen on children and things like that. Phenomenal strength under certain, under certain stress. He feels that way now. He's not, not command, but you've had that in when you can do almost anything. And uh, Nephi, beside that, is a, an overpowering person. Remember, he's had a lot of practice with these fellows, and they were confounded. They durst not do this, lest they should wither me. They don't know what would happen. So powerful was the Spirit of God. And then the Lord said to me, Stretch forth thine hand, and uh, again to thy brethren, and they shall not wither before thee, but I will shock them, saith the Lord. So there's electric force here. What is it? St. Elmo's fire, something like that. Uh, so he, gives them a, he gives them a shock, and that's all. That's enough to give them a jolt. Well, we're talking about natural phenomena and so forth. But remember, in, in 1820s, when this was written, who knew, knew anything about shocks of an electrical nature and so forth? They had Leiden jars then, but that wasn't enough to shock him much. Uh, it's the power of the Lord that has shaken us, they felt, and so they yielded to. And, and they go to the other extreme. They were about to worship me. Now, wait a minute. Makes sense here. One minute, they've done that before, remember, when they were when he was unbound, when they were coming back from Jerusalem, uh, they bowed down to him. They begged his pardon. And here they're about to worship him. You notice weak people always go to extremes here. This is characteristic, and it's all, but it's also characteristic of the Arabic nature to go to extremes. Uh, well, this is so characteristic. In the middle of years ago, the little Philadelphia hotel down the hill in a, in a ditch below Amman there, uh, they were doing some digging and, uh, and excavating around there. And uh, it was the time when Nasser was controlling things. And in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock, we I was standing with two other people. We were the only people, the only Americans in a month, uh, or the only foreigners at all. And at 3 o'clock in the morning came this howling mob. Well, I thought it was a Mohammedan festival. So I came out and congratulated them and so forth, and went back to bed and went to sleep. And in the, mo the morning, they told me this was really a riot. It was stirred up by the agents. And they had to send two tanks down from the palace to to get rid of them. But the thing is, the next morning I went out, and the same guys were all digging on the excavations out there. And we laughed and joked together, and I asked them if I could take a picture. Sure, I can take a picture. They told me about their family. You're the best of friends, just like that. See? They were going to tear down the hotel and burn us and everything else. And we just had a, well, these things happen uh, quite often, you know. Uh, and well, uh, at, at Amman, is an interesting thing. <coughs> uh, Mrs. Vester's son, who was a very close friend of, of Lawrence of Arabia, had been. Uh, they're, in charge of the, uh, they're in charge of the American colony there at Jerusalem, which was in, in Jordan at that time. And uh, he was getting along in years, but uh, his brother was in charge of the waterworks at Amman. Of course, there is no water in Amman. And, uh, but after the war, they got a big loan, and they, they put toilets and they put some fancy apartment houses all over, high-rises and everything in Amman. And the mob went through the city and smashed every toilet in the city. He says it was a good thing because we didn't have a drop of water. <laughs> this modern innovation was too much. They just went and smashed them. So we went to Muna, Musa Bay Alami's farm. We had to stay there a week. That's the main reason we were there, which is right down on the Jordan, right at the mouth where it enters. The, where it enters the, the Dead Sea. And uh, just the week before, a mob had come down from Jericho and killed 3,000 chickens. Tore them all to bits. Why they did it, I don't know. But the people were very friendly there after that, though there were armed guards around everywhere. Oh, these people do go to extremes. And remember the Zoramites in the Book of Mormon who were so wicked that they turned Alma's stomach. He couldn't stand them. Yet they were the most righteous people. They were the most saintly people you could possibly imagine. Remember, we thank thee that we are not like other people. We thank thee that we are a blessed people and so forth. And yet he said he'd never in his life seen such wickedness. Well, these things go together. Uh, weakness, these uh, weak people go to extremes, both of righteousness and of wickedness at the same time. That's the way you balance the book, you see. Well, we are neither one. We are neither righteous nor wicked all the way, so we, we go between. Well, the, uh, so they're about to worship him, and he says, don't bother about me. Honor thy father and thy mother. 
And now he showed him how to make the ship, you see, how to work the timbers and so forth, as we saw. It's very interesting. It's, it's the natural way. They've been doing it for thousands of years. Of course, they knew about that much. They'd, he'd seen it, but doing it's something else. You see, you have to be an expert. It's inherited and so forth. After the manner which the Lord showed me, he made this ship. And he went out to the mountain often to him pray, pray for instructions, and the Lord showed me great things. And uh, when the brethren saw the, the ship was finished, they were really impressed, you see. A first-class piece of work would have more, more effect on them, I'm sure, than any sermons by Nephi. But when, when somebody actually makes a, makes a ship, and it was a functional ship, so it must have been a beauty. It must have been nice to look at, too. And he says, when my brethren beheld that it was good and the workmanship thereof was exceeding fine, so it was a beautifully built ship, they did humble themselves again before the Lord. That would convince them if nothing else would produce this ship. And uh, so they all go into the ship, everyone according to age, and uh, Jacob and Joseph having been born in the wilderness. And they were driven by the wind for the space of many days. Well, they also incidentally traced the sea routes. And this is an important thing, too. How would they get across? They had an awful lot of water to cross. You remember, they go from the, the coast here. And uh, well, too much trouble to put up the map. As you know, it goes along like this. And, and here is the Gulf. And here is, oops, this is the Katara Peninsula here. But this is where they go from. This is the Kara Mountains, you see. And this is, this is Jeddah down here down here. This is the 19th parallel. They come down here, they go across here, and this is called Salale today. And it's the place where you get the best ship-making wood. They tell us about this is Salale, and this is where it grows wild. He described the Carl Mountains here as a, the place where they would come out, if Joseph Smith was right about it. And he says here, in Salala, we confirmed the fact that the monsoons, which fill the Kara Mountains with life-giving moisture during the summer, also provide Salala with a trade wind that could have taken the ship toward the Pacific. And perhaps the trade winds, which the have discovered and used in ancient times, in the 6th century and so forth, they go from the northeast in the, in the fall and winter, and they go from the, yes, they go, that's right from there, and then they come from the southwest. This is the one they would follow in the spring and summer. And they, that, when they discovered the trades, they could go one way. They were prevailing winds. They kept going. All during the season, they would take you this way, from Malabar, from India, and so forth. And all the, re the other half of the world, they take you back again. So they could import the treasures of the Orient. And this is what Columbus was after, among other things. So they tell us here, the... Uh, The Arab entrepreneurs were sailing their dhows all the way from the Arabian Gulf to China. Arab ships rode the monsoons to the Malabar coast of India, then on to Ceylon, in time to catch the summer monsoon, June to December, and speed across the often treacherous Bay of Bengal, past the Nicobar Islands, through the Malacca Straits, into the South China Sea. From there, they were able to make quick, if risky, 30-day run up the main trading station to Canton in China. The trip from the Arabian Peninsula to China took approximately 120 days. Now, once they emerged from the Malacca Straits, the open, they could go the southern route or they could go the northern route, which the Jaredites went the northern route, they probably went the southern. Sometimes, blown completely off course, they would end up in the Pacific, where the Chinese believed, quote, believed the drained spout of the world's ocean sucked the unwary sailor into oblivion. Cleland and Chaplin, in their old classic History of California, listed quite a number of instances in which Oriental Chinese doubt. The Santa Barbara Islands, uh, many Chinese artifacts have been faded, many thousands have been wrecked. Because then, when you get caught in the Japan Current, you see, you get carried right along the Great Circle there, inside of land almost all the way. But they didn't go that way, they crossed the Pacific uh, the other way. And, uh, and then the reverse, it depends on, on which stream you get into. So he says, uh, all of these records date from at least five, 500 years after the highest party left Ray Well, the records of the journeys. But his conclusion here is that, oh, some North American Indians, where is the route considered? He's talking about it here. On the coast of Salala, we found the end of Lehi's trail. We discovered no contradictions, no absurdities in the record of Lehi left behind. Nothing that we discovered in the volumes on geography and history and so forth contradicted it. And uh, so the route, they could get caught up and taken across, and that was that. And you remember, they got caught in a, in a typhoon, in a hurricane. The ship nearly sank, and it lasted for days. In other words, they got caught in a hurricane. I don't know what they would name it. Hurricane Sarah or something like that. <laughs> 
But it nearly wrecked the ship and had a terrible time, and that was on the South Pacific going across, where they have some beauties. And also touching at the islands, this is another thing. Uh, we won't go into that. That's another record. So for the space of many days, and then they began, now this is a character, of, they like to have a party, they were great party people, Lehman and Lemuel and all, and uh, well, they say that, they enjoyed the rich things that Jews and their friends and so forth. Make themselves merry, they began to dance and to sing and to speak with much rudeness, even that they did forget by what power they were brought thither. Now, as Joseph Smith says, rudeness is a sin. That reverentia, reverence, is reverence for anything. There's no, no reason for being rude. We must hold nobody and nothing in contempt. We must never do that because we don't know the values of things. We don't know how to evaluate at all. As the Romans say, everything must be rite, erecting, param solemnitate, or nimis, well, param solemnitate. Everything must be done ritually, rightly, and with proper solemnity. And Joseph Smith's famous address to the brethren when he says, we, you've been acting like a lot of children. We must be more serious-minded about this thing. The things of God are of great importance. Remember, he says, oh man, you must, you must, your mind must be stretched as far, as far as eternity, and you must ponder these things in great seriousness and think about them. It doesn't mean you have to be solemn all the time. Nobody laughed more than Joseph Smith. But that's a different thing from vain and empty laughter. That's a very, that's a, as, it's, as we're told in the, <coughs> the Dead Sea Scrolls, the hollow, silly laughter, it doesn't mean anything. Brigham Young gave a talk on that, a dedication to Salt Lake Theater. It's no good. But rudeness, no, that, that is a sinful sort of thing. It is uh, treating the world disrespectfully. And, and I, Nephi, began to fear lest the Lord should be angry with us for the way we were behaving, he says. Therefore, I, Nephi, began to speak to them with much soberness. Now, this would make them just madder, wouldn't it? But behold, they were angry with me. What do you expect by now, after all the lecturing they've been getting from him? This is the last straw as far as they're concerned. We will not that our younger brother shall be ruler over us, he says. So they tied him up with cords and tight, so much that I couldn't move. And the compass ceased to work, and then came the typhoon, and they were driven back for three days. On the fourth day, it looks as if they were going to founder, and we were about to be swallowed up in the depths of the sea, so they loosed his hands, and his wrists and ankle were terribly swollen. And, uh, but you notice the sons of Ishmael had joined them, I, I say it, I was just reading in Nathan Hababli. In the 8th century, in the 9th century, he went to look for dead, tri uh, dead tribes, for the 10 tribes. They often did that, you know. Uh, Jews, they sent out expeditions, and he's the most famous one. And, the, and he talks about going down this coast here. And he says, all up here is a mixture of, of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he says, the most notable thing about them is their ill nature and their dangerous short tempers. You stay away from them, he says. Today. But they're mixed with the children of Ishmael along there, meaning the Arabs and so forth. The same mixture you get in the Book of Mormon, you see there. You get uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Ishmael all mixed up around here. He says, they're, uh, they're marvelous at tracking. They're marvelous at tracking and finding things in the desert. And he says, they also cultivate the Arabian horses. He says, the remarkable people, what are they doing down there? He doesn't know. Then he goes in various parts of it, into Africa, into Central Asia. He gets around looking for the Ten Tribes. <coughs> but down here, he's got Book of Mormon people he's dealing with. That, that mixture, that gener generic mixture. And the parents, you see. The sons of Ishmael, they breathed out threatenings against Lehi's parents, you see. It's his parents. And they were brought down even upon their sick beds. I imagine a typhoon in any kind of a boat to be on your sick bed most of the time. I know I would. The, uh, it was a sad journey, though, as far as this goes. We were near, I love this mixture of metaphors here, so it's very oriental, too. In the 18th verse, he says, they're about to lie low in the dust, yea, even they were near to being cast with sorrow into a watery grave. So that would be what Hamlet calls muddy death, wouldn't it? Drag the poor wretch, wretch in her melodious song down to muddy death. If you mix the water, the dust, and the watery grave, you're gonna get mud, see, that's, that's a joke. No, but the point is, we would not think of mixing, going down into the dust in a watery grave at the same time, but that's eloquent poetry. The contrast is a, a strong uh, literary, uh, a skillful literary device to put dust and water into contrast that way. Um, the children did not soften the hearts of my brother. That didn't work, uh, that they would loose me. And we were about to be swallowed. It was just the last bit, the last swallow. And, and then they repented what they'd done, and then they loosed me. And he took the compass, and it worked, and he steered them back. And they land with all these seeds and their preparations and so forth. Remember, most of the plants in most of the countries of the world have been transplanted there in prehistoric other times. You get 
get around where it's a very interesting of course the geography of plants and where you find them and where you don't and it came to pass we did find the land of promise and they set out there and uh, they are seasoned explorers certainly seasoned explorers and survivors by this they can go through anything uh, she says here, we journeyed in the wilderness, they noticed all sorts of things, they knew what they could use, what they couldn't use. They were just prepared for this sort of thing. Those literary people, but they, after eight years of practice, they knew a good deal about surviving and didn't waste any time exploiting and exploring the land. So the 19th then, he's talking about his writing on the plates and so forth, and then we get to the 10th verse when he talks about Zenoch and Naomi's prophets, and the prophet Zenos, a very interesting thing. He spake concerning the three days of darkness, and unto those who should inhabit the isles of the sea. Notice he's much taken with isles of the sea here, who are of the house of Israel. Notice right across the page in verse 16. Yea, he remembers the isles of the sea again, and all the people of the house of Israel, the same phrase. The Lord God shall surely visit all the house of Israel in that day with his voice, again you see either to thunderings or to his gentler voice. And all these things must surely come to pass, saith Zenos. Now, who was Zenos the prophet? We have a discourse on Zenos here, which we won't spend much time with, but it's a, he's an interesting character, Zenos and Zenos. The name appears in both forms. Zenos uh, and Zenos. Zenos looks like a Greek name, doesn't it, Zenos? Um, but it isn't. With an X it would be. But, uh, now here, ah, 322. Mm. With the prophet Zenos. Yeah. Twelve times the Book of Mormon names the prophet Zenos. He's named twelve times. There's no mention of him in the Bible. We have no record of him anywhere. Not until around 1906 then he was found. The people of Lehi had brought his writings from Jerusalem, and they were popular for preachers living hundreds of years after, expected people to remember passages of his word, Fountain Alman. Now how could an important prophet like Zenos, if he ever existed, simply be dropped out of sight? Well, in 1893, M.R. James published Greek and Latin version of an ancient text entitled, entitled The Vision of Zenos, the Father of Gotoniel. And then we go into Father. Since Gotoniel, the Othniel of the Bible, is Kenaz, or Zenos, James translates the title of Vision of Zenos, though, of Kenaz, though the name which appears in the text is always Zenos. You go into that. And thus, the vision of Zenos could help attest the existence of prophetic spirit, we're quoting uh, M.R. James here, in the times of the judges. So Zenos goes back to the time of the judges, the time, an empty time, between the time of Moses and the time of, of Elijah was the time of the judges. That's very early time, and this was a prophet from the time of the judges. And so naturally they would have him here, the things he's, he's inspired and talks about these, these things. Today we can, it can be taken as definitely indicated the vision of Zenos is old and Jewish, not as James suggests, among other possibilities, merely a medieval attempt at Old Testamentary prophecy, and we know that's different today. Uh, then, the Zenos fragment begins telling how once when the elders were seated together, the holy indwelling spirit came to Zenos, and he took leave of his senses and began to prophesy. Uh, and we go into the Book of Mormon, Zenos, who prophesies in the midst of the congregations. That's the expression used here in the Book of Mormon, in the midst of the congregations. Like the, the old world Zenos, this is Zenos, the Book of Mormon, Zenos, is conscious of being one of a line of prophets, all of whom have testified of the Messiah. Helaman tells us that, 822. And, and when he, re, he awoke and his spirit returned to him, he remembered, he didn't talk about the old, the newly discovered book of Zenos, 1893. See? And he remembered what had been said. Then Zenos went forth and preached to the people, saying, if such is to be the rest of the righteous after they have left this life, it shows that much of the vision is missing, it behooves them to die to the things of this corruptible world, that they may not behold its sins. And after he'd said these things, Zenos died and slept with his fathers. But notice, he gives them a regular Book of Mormon sermon. It's, it sounds like New Testament or Dead Sea Scrolls. He says, if such is to be the rest of the righteous after they have left this life, it behooves them to die unto things of this corruptible world, that they might behold its sins and before he died. So this Zenos is a real person as far as that goes. And then the, the interesting thing about it, we come to him later, is that 
he prophesies about the vineyard. He compares Israel with the vineyard, which of course is the fifth chapter of Jacob. And Jacob says he's quoting Zenos when he tells it. So here we have an, a beautiful connection between Zenos and Zenos. Oh, this one is from Since Camorra. It's on, it's on reserve. And you can find Zenos in the index there. It's page 322 following anyway. Uh, and then, oh, this is a marvelous thing. This next, you never get, look at this 12th verse here. All these things are surely come, saith the prophet Zenos, way back there in the time of the judges. And he says, and the rocks of the earth must rend because of the groanings of the earth. Many of the kings of the isle, that's an odd thing to say, kings of the isle of the sea shall be wrought upon by the spirit of God, exclaiming, the God of nature suffers. Who were the kings of the isle of the sea? Well, that's what the Egyptians refer to as the kings of the Cyclades, or the islands of the, of the Aegean. They call them, they have a regular title, I got it written down here with ha, well, it means those who live among the around behind the islands. They use the same word for island that we do, I. The old English word for island is I, and the Egyptian word is I, too. And they're called those, these are three. This is a, a phonetic, sorry. Most like it. Ha, and then three is the plural for anything. These, this is a picture of an island, beautifully drawn. It means those who live on the islands, those who live behind the islands, and the, well, you could say this there, the chiefs or the kings of the islands. Now, these are the kings of the Mediterranean islands of Greece. Uh, the famous ones, of course, uh, Santorini, Thera, Crete, and so forth. And these were shaken by periodic earthquakes of great severity, as you know. The greatest catastrophe, for example, in historic times around 1600, when the island of Thera just blew up eight times as great a uh, an explosion of Krakatoa, which are absolutely immense. Was it in the time of Abraham? It may have been, and so forth. But anyway, when this happens, what do the kings of the earth say? Well, Plutarch tells us the story that on one occasion, the king was sailing by. Well, this is a very important one. In his writing called On the, on the Cessation of the Oracles, Plutarch's trying to show that the, the, oracle, the ancient oracles have ceased. And the sailor was sailing by, a famous sailor was sailing by, and uh, an island, uh, one of the islands, I've got to look everything up, and he heard a voice coming from the temple of Pan. Pan is the great god of nature, as you know, Pan pipes and all this sort of thing. And the voice said, he heard this voice crying out with great lamentation, and then all the air was filled with lamentation. Great god, great Pan is dead. The god of nature is dead, you see. When, when these terrible things happen, comes this voice from the shrine in the island, the god of nature is dead, Pan, the great Pan is dead. And here, the kings of the isles shall be wrought upon to exclaim, the god of nature suffers. Now, you won't find the god of nature, you'll find it in the 18th century, it's very popular, and you'll find it in the, uh, that is, in the Age of Reason, but you won't find it in the Bible, anything like that, they don't talk about the god of nature, but who's talking about the god of nature? The kings of the isles of the sea. They're the ones that say the god of nature is dead because of the apathy. So here's a very interesting insight. And who says it? Not Lehi, not Nephi. It's Zenos who says it. They've got the book in. So it goes way back to the times when the kings ruled around the islands, Cyprus and so forth, and declared it was dead. This, this has such a ring to it, such a classical ring to it. It's characteristically Mediterranean, of course. One of those little vignettes that's just thrown in for no extra charge, you know, but, but really allows you to check on things. But the fact that she... If this had been put in the mouth of Lehi or somebody, you could raise an eyebrow and say, not at that time. Must have been much earlier. Ah, yes, Zenos said it. We didn't say it. And as for those who are at Jerusalem, saith the prophet, he shall be scourged by all people. They've been, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They'll be hated among all nations as a result. Despised for despising. And he remembered then the Isle of the Sea and the house of Israel scattered, according to the prophet Zenos, scattered to the four corners of the earth. And all the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. I speak unto all the house of Israel. I have workings of the Spirit. Again, Nephi's great, great fervor and passion. And his, notice his empathy here in the 20th verse. Great workings of the Spirit, which doth weareth me that all my joints are weak for those who are at Jerusalem. Had not the Lord been merciful and shown me concerning them, even the prophets of old, I should have perished also. And we know these things concerning because they're written on the black by the brass plates. I did read many things to them, and they might know what had happened in the past. And then this important statement. Read many things that were written in the book of Moses, but especially he read them Isaiah, he said. For I did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and 
learning. And then what follows are two chapters quoted right from Isaiah, but not word for word. In this book I just read from, we have a, a chapter on Isaiah here, a section on Isaiah, and uh, don't need to linger on it now. But uh, toward the close of his book, Nephi quotes two chapters, 48 and 49 of Isaiah in full. This would be a daring thing for a forger to do. Imagine, include two whole pages, two whole chapters of the Bible in an attempt to fool the Bible-reading public. Well, you're not going to get away with that. Everybody would recognize that for what it is, wouldn't they? Right off the thing. If the author of the Book of Mormon was an imposter, his attempts to deceive are prodigiously artless here. Uh, but the Book of Mormon follows the language of the King James Bible only as far as the latter conveys the correct meaning of the original. So far, it's Nephi's translation from being a slavish repetition. There is hardly a single verse that is identical in the two translations. Most of the changes are minor, but they are there, and they're important, because we have the Septuagint to, to uh, check them. And so we give another number of sections the way they're quoted in the Book of Mormon, in Isaiah, and in the Septuagint, and the Book of Mormon is closest to the Septuagint, which is actually, see the Septuagint is actually over a thousand years older than the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. That was until the first cave, the first discovery, along with a, with a Serech scroll at Qumran, was a complete text of Isaiah, a thousand years older than any Hebrew text of Isaiah known before. Now we could compare it and see how well it has survived and how well it's been copied, miraculously well. That there are 3,000 different readings, but they're small readings, but different readings of uh, punctuations, ways of expressing endings and so forth. Uh, they're there, it's not the same. It's the same thing with, with, as the way it's quoted here. Almost every verse has little changes in it. And there are some verses that have some important changes and, and they're significant ones. But uh, this is the, notice, I did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learn, because Isaiah is talking to them as well as he's talking to us. Remember we talk about the recurrent scenario and that's what we have here key to the Book of Mormon. Their history is really our history. We are all talking, taking the same standard test, talking the same terms and so forth. The props, as I say, the props change, the scene change, the background changes, the sets, and the technology changes, but the issues are always the same, the test. Yes, and we're all trying to qualify for the same job, the same future employment, to rule and reign in the House of Israel. And this is what, so we're all it applies to us just as much as it does to them. That's why Isaiah is so alive today. And talks about, I knew they were, well, I knew they were very treacherous. He just pulls Israel out and so forth. I'm going to skip these two chapters of Isaiah. Let's come to chapter 22. When the brethren ask him, what do these things mean that Isaiah talks about? Notice they say in the 22nd verse, what meaneth these things? Well, aren't they just spiritual? We're not going to be bound by them. These are just spiritual. This is always the way to weasel out of a situation. We're just spirits. I'll pay a spiritual tithe. That's the important thing. Uh, and not the flesh. He says, no, they're both. That was the second verse he says. By the Spirit are all things made known unto the prophets, which shall come upon the children of men according to the flesh. It will be literal. Take that point. Wherefore, the things of which I have spoken and read, they do pertain both to temporal things and spiritual things. For it appears that the house of Israel soon will be scattered upon all the face of the earth among all nations. Notice a complicated ethnic picture too. Uh, then, and be scattered to and fro on the islands of the sea. As I was saying, Eldad Hadani, that includes the ten tribes, you see. Uh, well, they've already, uh, they have been scattered too. They were scattered in the earlier time, 720, when Israel fell to the Assyrians. But uh, the ten, but then the others are, are scattered too. The rest of them are all scattered. They continue. And those who shall hereafter be scattered and confounded, confounded means mixed, mixed up together with other people, they will harden their hearts, they shall be scattered among all nations and hated of all men. Well, you know what happened, you know the, holo the Holocaust and how many times that sort of thing has happened. 2,000 years of that, no people ever had to suffer like that. Until the Gentiles will take, will take them under, they'll be nursed by the Gentiles. Their daughters have been carried upon the shoulders of the, uh, given, given their support to temporal. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, it is that when it speaks of their daughters, he says they're speaking of temporal things. Now, the interesting thing is that these Jewish girls married princes and kings and dukes all over. They're such fascinating women, as you know, they're marvelous. Uh, there's something about not just a Jewish mama, 
uh, but a Jewish girl, they have such intelligence, such verbs, such a dash, such indis well, you know the story of Sarah and the king of Persia and so forth. And it's a, it's a story that spreads, it's widespread. You find this everywhere there. The story of Judith, Holofernes, uh, a great classic on that subject. And so, well, and then you find in Merchant of Venice, but you notice the beautiful daughter Jessica, uh, she, she marries, uh, what's his name, uh, but anyway, Jessica, she, she marries one of, the, one of the heroes in the play. Sit, Jessica, look how the floor of heaven is paved over and so forth. But she was a marvelous gal, you see, and, and, and uh, Shylock goes through the street saying, oh, my daughter, my ducats, my daughter, my ducats, which does he miss the most? <laughs> But their daughters had a great appeal, and so I think that may be slipped in here. It meaneth us in the days to come, and I'll see there are specific references here. It meaneth us in the days to come, and also our brethren who are of the house of Israel. And there shall be a mighty nation among the Gentiles on this land, and after our seed is scattered, it's likened unto their being nourished by the Gentiles, and going to keep the promise to, uh, the promise to Abraham that in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And they can't be blessed unless, because they can't save themselves. Remember, they're supposed to be reduced to almost nothing at all, and they will not survive at all, the 25th chapter of Matthew says, unless the time is cut short in righteousness. There would be none of them left, and they didn't have a chance if the Lord didn't intervene. So he says, they cannot be blessed unless he shall make bare his arm, until he shall intervene with force in the eyes of the nations. Wherefore, the Lord God will proceed to bear his arm in the eyes of all the nations. This is what's going on here. When everything is going downhill, men do not have control. They cannot reverse the trend. God must, must show his arm there. Then he will bring them again out of captivity. No one knows who they are, notice, and they shall be gathered unto the lands, plural, of their inheritance, not just Israel, lands of their inheritance, out of obscurity and out of darkness. Who knows where they are? And so don't argue about where the ten tribes are. As to the abominable church, notice, which has rule over the whole earth. Elsewhere it says that, and here it says the whore of all the earth. Now, no one church beguiles the whole world, the whole earth. This, as we've seen, is, that, is, is the collective as far as that goes. Every nation that wars against Israel, they shall war what? Against one another. Well, of course, the Arabs fight each other, the European nations fight each other, everybody fights each other. All that fight against Zion shall be destroyed. Now, the point is, Zion is not an achievement. Zion is a project here. And there is no Zion. Zion is not on the earth now. We do not uh, have one heart and one mind and no poor among us. That's far from the case. And there are those who oppose it and so forth. There are those who use the name of Zion as a sales gimmick very commonly. But then there are those the most dedicated enemies of the church, those who have kept, kept the real literature going from Howe down and Chandler down to, to Fawn Brody, from E.D. Howe. Uh, they've not been Romanists, members of the Roman church. The great opposition to the church, the, the, the Missouri mobs and so forth, were all fundamentalists. And uh, all that fight against Zion shall be destroyed, the great and the bomb and so forth. Uh, this raging hostility against the church. And then comes the first vision. I suppose uh, the 16th verse, the time soon cometh after that, that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all children of men, shall not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous. Wherefore, he will preserve the righteous by his power. And we don't know why, but here he talks about something. The fullness of his wrath must come, the righteous must be preserved, even unto the destruction of the enemies by fire. Now, there are He ne doesn't refer to the sword at all in the, through the Book of Mormon. How many times? 28-something times. He refers to the destruction, and it's always by fire, and in these terms. Wherefore, the righteous need not fear, for thus saith the prophet, they shall be saved, even if it so be as by fire. What's that? Counterfire, or what is it? Or the wicked destroy each other by fire, and thus save the righteous. Behold, my brethren, I say unto you, these things must come shortly. Shortly after Nephi is speaking? No. Shortly after the thing described in the, in the eighth verse above here, where he says, and after our seed is scattered, and the Lord God will proceed to do a marvelous work. Then, you see, shortly after that time, will come fire, and the vapor of smoke must come, and must needs, see, I find no, no mention of the sword here. Fire and vapor of smoke must come, and it must needs be upon the face of this earth, covered with a vapor of smoke. And it cometh according to men in the flesh. I'm not talking about a spiritual fire. If it so be, they will harden their hearts against the Holy One of Israel. Uh, this is once an unimaginable situation. How could any smoke cover the whole earth and so forth? What kind of a thing would that be? Wars are, are very well contained up until now. This is something else. Now the whole seas in Carnadine are 
are polluted. For behold, the righteous shall not perish. Now this is the only possible defense. The righteous shall not perish. Repent, the righteous, repent. They won't, that's the guarantee. We don't know how it's going to be done, but the Lord says he will manage it. And you just trust him and trust righteousness and don't put your trust in the arm of flesh. Notice the next verse. For behold, uh, the time must come, must, must perish. And the prophet here, the righteous need not fear. Notice the 22nd verse. For they are those who shall not be confounded, but it shall be the kingdom of the devil. And then he talks about the four things that are that make up, make our world, make our day. The great abomination is a composite here, you see, when he talks about the, the church itself. And here, there are these things, the time shall speedily come that all churches, notice the destruction, not just one church, great and abominable, all churches. The great and abominable includes all churches that have this, the four things that we all set our hearts on today. Notice what they are, their gain and power and popularity and the lusts of the flesh. Those are the four things. That's your prime time mix. This, these are our role models today because they have these things, the things we like to watch. We like to see the wealth and the corruption and the crime and the violence and so forth because the things we covet are gain, first of all, and then power. You have the power gives the money, the money gives the power. And then you have to be popular. That's an important thing if you're going to go into business. And then, of course, you do it all, and then you, you have your, your private life, which is not so private, terribly public, I guess. So, the kingdom of the devil, they are they who must be consumed as stubble. There you are, that burning as stubble again. That makes me nervous. Uh, the Holy, well, let's finish the book now. The Holy One of Israel must reign and gather in from the four corners of the earth, and he numbereth his sheep, and they know him. And because of righteousness of this people, the only thing that will save him, the righteousness of his people, Satan has no power. Therefore, he cannot be loosed for the space of many years, for he hath no power over their hearts, you know. This is Satan's battleground, is their hearts. And the one effective weapon against the forces of evil we talk about is righteousness. You know, you don't go back and fight them and so forth. Behold, all nations, and finally, this is 90 times this, this phrase occurs in the Book of Mormon, the importance of bringing all nations into the play. <clears throat> it isn't just for one uh, limited group or one special tribe or chosen people or anything like that or church. He says, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people shall dwell safely in the Holy One of Israel if it so be that they will repent. It doesn't say necessarily they're members of the church or anything like that, but they shall dwell and they shall be safe in the Holy One of Israel if they will repent. All nations. Uh, so the church is not provincial and it's not ethnic. And uh, here also, the, all the churches. And this has become very characteristic of churches, hasn't it? This doesn't sound like a respectful way to talk about churches, but they're certainly after gain. They're certainly after power. They certainly want to become popular because that's the, you don't get gain unless you're popular. That's your numbers, you see, people. And what do they do when they get rich? Invariably become corrupt. We've seen that. Not just the backers, but a lot of other people. Well, the bakers, well, I see the time is up now. So, so now we do the second book. Now, the, now he really breaks loose. The great book is the second book of Nephi. That is where we really get something. And uh, so we don't want to rush these things.